Geogrieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. It's been a week of devastating revelations since Monday's broadcast of the documentary Black Rock Boys on this station, where we heard how two brothers, Mark and David Ryan, were, from the age of 12 to 17, both repeatedly sexually abused in Black Rock College in South County, Dublin. Their abusers were from the Spiritan community at the school. Gardaí are also investigating allegations of abuse against members of the Irish Spiritans, previously known as the Holy Ghost Fathers, over a 50-year period. The order has said that 233 people have made allegations of sexual abuse against 77 of their members, with 57 people alleging they were abused on the Black Rock campus. The order also states that it has paid more than 5 million euros in settlements to date. It's also been revealed that the Irish Jesuits have paid 7.4 million euros in settlement costs to abuse survivors. Meanwhile in France, Cardinal Jean-Pierre Ricard, a former long-serving Bishop of Bordeaux, has admitted abusing a 14-year-old girl. He's one of 11 senior French clergymen facing sexual abuse allegations, as revealed this week during the annual conference of bishops gathering in Lourdes. Pope Francis, who made a historic ecumenical visit to Bahrain this week, appointed Ricard as cardinal in 2016. It was also announced this week that Pope Benedict XVI is to defend himself in a civil lawsuit brought by a German man accusing the 95-year-old of covering up sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Tonight's programme, I should emphasise, was recorded prior to these revelations and to the broadcast of the Black Rock Boys documentary on Monday evening. In a moment, we'll hear from Ernie Ray, Northern Irish Presbyterian Minister and former Head of Religious Broadcasting at the BBC. But first, we go to Galway, which earlier this year gained two new bishops, one Church of Ireland, the other Roman Catholic, and both are called Michael. The Right Reverend Michael Burroughs is Bishop of Toom, Limerick and Killaloo, and the Most Reverend Michael Dynan is Bishop of Galway and Kilmacdua, Apostolic Administrator of Kilfenora and Bishop of Clonfert. While they're both responsible for a much larger geographic area than their predecessors, numbers within congregations continued to fall. I began by asking Bishop Dynan what the role of a bishop now involves in this radically changing landscape. I suppose I'm... I'm new to the role. I'm learning. That's the first thing I'll say. So I'm not going to give any definitive pronouncement on the role of a bishop because it's something I'm I'm learning and experimenting with. Um, What do I see from my experience so far? I think our role, people look to us uh, to lead the management of the current situation or to be a stimulus for people to gather together around the current situation to work out how we're going to manage it, how we're going to live as as church, live as people of faith in this particular era and the circumstances we find ourselves in. And I mean it's 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 obvious that our every parish is facing challenges. 
um, challenges in the numbers of people attending, uh, challenges in the age profile of the people attending, uh, challenges in the availability of clergy and in the age profile of clergy, and also challenges in the, the, the people that they can draw on for volunteers that kept everything going in, in the past. And with that, financial challenges. And we've built up in the, the Catholic Church in Ireland in the last 100, 150 years since Catholic emancipation, we've built up an enormous infrastructure. Um, we have churches every three, four miles because people had to walk to church or, or ride a bicycle. Um, we've built up the, the enormous infrastructure of the religious orders that, that every town had a convent, every every place had a religious order. That that infrastructure is there, but it's not the people aren't there to, to use it or to maintain it. So I suppose with, with all those changes, my role, I think, is to, first of all, tell people that this is, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not the end. That's, that's my viewpoint on it anyway. I think it could be a great period of creativity. I think it's a Kairos moment. It's a grace moment if we accept it as such. And to encourage people, um, to allow people to mourn for the past, and then to to gradually gather people around to look at what are we going to do for the future. And I always say, I've always, this phrase I picked up somewhere, I'm not so sure where, but, you know, we have to free ourselves from many things in order to free ourselves for something. So at the moment, I see myself as trying to stimulate that type of conversation. What are we for? What What's the future going to be? And what do we have to let go or how do we discern what we have to let go in order to achieve that future with much reduced personnel and, and resources? Um, it's complex, complex task. But that, that's where I see myself at the moment. Michael Burroughs, would you see the changes that have happened over the past few decades as the same way? Do you face similar challenges or additional ones? Well, again, I'd say snap to much of what Michael has said. Uh, the Church of Ireland, like the Roman Catholic Church, has the historical baggage of an incredible amount of infrastructure and stuff. After all, for better or worse, we were the established church up to 1871 and we're still kind of paying the price of some of that heritage, wonderful as heritage can be. Um, I, As I say, I never worry on... Duly about very small numbers in remote places. I never get um, caught up with the kind of idolatry of the past because in many ways we are living in much more uh, creative times now. And I think one of the most important things a bishop has to do, as well as to try to help to manage change, is always to give people in the local a sense of the whole, of the bigger picture. And even if these are challenging times for Christianity in Ireland, when one looks at the whole global picture, it's all very exciting and full of life. And it's important to remind people, as I say, and one of the joys of being a bishop is one can have a role beyond the diocese. And I've had various opportunities in the worldwide Anglican communion to see the sort of the wider picture in very different uh, ecclesiastical contexts. And as I say, one of the bishop can, things the bishop must do is to remind 
the local community, small as they may be, of the Catholicity of the church and of the bigger picture of which they are but a small part in their own witness. There have, of course, been many changes in the last few decades, not merely to do with um, patterns of church attendance or the relationship of our small island to a bigger world, but also to do with moral questions, um, particularly to do with the environment, um, the various referenda we've had in this in the in, in the recent past, and just last week. Again, the, the question of the place of LGBTQ people in society and particularly in the church came into focus once again with the, um, the comments that Father Sean Sheehy made, um, which then got um, an apology from his bishop for the hurt that they caused because they did cause uh, a lot of hurt. How do you cope with these contentious issues from the point of view of being a bishop? And maybe Michael Dignan, maybe I go to you first, because take the the Father Sheehy example. He would probably say, "Well, I'm just um, I'm just preaching what the church teaches." Um, but we've got used, haven't we, to a more pastoral approach, which looks at the person. And I think Pope Francis mm. has modelled that. How how do you, as bishop, balance between the teaching function, where you have a certain um, doctrine uh, that's official and then a situation where if a priest actually teaches that um, they cause a lot of hurt well I, I I don't want to comment on something in another diocese you know something that's that's been dealt with in another diocese but I suppose on the LGBTQI plus issue I was very much part of the the synodal process recently in our own diocese in Clonfert and also nationally, and I attended the national synthesis meeting, pre-synthesis meeting in Athlone. And one of the things that, that really was palpable from the LGBTIQI community was a sense of feeling excluded and feeling hurt over the years by, by the church or by members of the church. And that came not just from, from people themselves, but from family and, and from friends. So I, I think it is, it is an issue that, that seriously needs to be addressed. And as you said, I think Pope Francis has given a strong leadership on it. And I think it's something that will form a large part of the, the synodal process going forward. And in a way that that includes people and brings people along rather than brings brings people down. I think what I hear you describing is puts the onus on the church leadership and church authorities to listen to people. We also have to acknowledge, I think, that even though the church doesn't teach that the Catholic Church doesn't teach that LGBTQI people are inherently sinful. There is teaching on the table that if they act on their sexuality, which is such a huge part of being human, then they understand themselves as being going against what the church teaches. Um, and that makes it very hard for them to enter into that conversation. Michael Burroughs, I believe you yes. have been involved in actually trying to change what your church teaches 
and then that would make it even out the playing field, if you like, in terms of that conversation? Well, I might do this in a slightly circuitous way. Um, the Church of Ireland has been for many years a synodical church, although in the way it does synod, perhaps it does it in a more neo-parliamentary way than might be ideal. But at any rate, in our deliberations, I've seen over my lifetime a, a huge amount of change. I would take it as a providential response to the blowing of the spirit in the world we know. And I suppose the areas of change with which Anglicanism worldwide is uh, wrestling most at the moment are the areas, first of all, of environmental responsibility, and secondly, and for a long time now, the issue of human sexuality and how the church should respond to how society is changing in this area and how people are experiencing being human um, in, in, in a very um, open and honest way. And I suppose within this international debate, I've watched our fellow Anglicans in Wales and in Scotland, to whom we are very close, uh, coming to a different official view of the marriage discipline in terms of some kind of liturgical affirmation of legal, same-sex, committed relationships. And I think that's a position I would long to see the Church of Ireland move towards. I'm obviously not the General Synod. I don't think I'm expressing uh, at this stage, the majority view, probably in that context on this one. But my sense of um, where we are in much of my own diocese, uh, but as I say, the wider church is something that um, you know has to be taken account of, obviously. My sense is that some kind of liturgical, formal, public recognition and celebration of the love, the tenderness and the commitment that are involved in, in same-sex uh, commitment within the civil law would be timely and would be welcomed. Our country has suffered a, a long history of religious division and here we are with a Church of Ireland bishop and a Roman Catholic bishop. How do you think we're doing ecumenically nowadays? Is there anything more that needs to be being done? I think we can always do more. I'm, I'm always enriched. I, I've met Michael on, on two occasions in the last few months um, at his installation in, in Clonfert and then I preached in the Clonfert Cathedral at an evening prayer, an ecumenical evening prayer for Pentecost. Um, you know, we, we did confine, we, we, we have Christian Unity Week where we kind of do something for that week. I think we have to, it's that encounter between people that that brings along the ecumenical endeavour, and uh, I think we we need to do, we always need to do more um, throughout the year, and and find more common purposes, more things we can work work together with. But I'm always enriched by it. I always feel that it's it it enriches me anyway uh, by being part of that that that, that sort of endeavour. Michael Burrows, oh, I are we doing enough? Well, I could get very passionate about this because in my work in the wider Anglican Communion, one of the joys of my life is, uh, is that I'm involved with the governance of the Anglican Centre in Rome, which is a kind of Anglican embassy in the Eternal City, which is a tremendous place of networking and conversation and trust building. So I've, I've always been very passionate about these causes. I think the immense progress of 
our lifetimes has meant there may be a certain degree of complacency now. Uh, we seem to have reached a, a kind of plateau. Um, I always like to have some sort of ecumenical initiative or idea on my desk to keep me motivated. I think one of the great things that we are at last learning to do in Ireland is not to define ourselves negatively. For a long time, over and against others, for a long time, churches in Ireland, I think, defined themselves as being what other churches weren't. I think nowadays we are much more receptive uh, to the richness that we can see in each other's traditions as we walk together. We need each other to be whole ourselves. We have a lot of work to do, not least in the Eucharistic area, but I would always love to articulate and re-articulate a famous principle, which is called the Lund Principle, associated with the World Council of Churches many years ago, that separated Christians should do together everything except what conscience obliges them to do separately. And in Ireland, we have a huge degree to journey to fulfill still to, as it were, live out that aspiration, I think. But it's, a, it's an enjoyable and wholesome journey. And this sort of conversation is part of it. The Right Reverend Michael Burroughs, Bishop of Toom, Limerick and Killaloo, and the Most Reverend Michael Dagnan, Bishop of Galway and Kilmacdour, Apostolic Administrator of Kilfenora and Bishop of Clonfert, thank you very much for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you. And now I'm delighted to be joined by Ernie Ray, who's recently retired as presenter of Beyond Belief on BBC Radio 4 after 21 years. He's also a former head of religious broadcasting at the BBC. Ernie Ray, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Great to be here, Siobhan. Could you tell me a bit, please, Ernie, about you, about what you were like as a young person and what led you to become ordained? Because I know you were ordained before you went to work for a long career with the BBC. I was a typical teenager, very sporty, um, liked a good time, lots of friends, uh, didn't study as much as I should until I went to university when I began to take it seriously. Uh, I I was brought up in uh, an evangelical Presbyterian family and I sat fairly lightly to it during my teenage years. Uh, But in the middle of my university career, I, I played a lot of hockey and cricket and I was on a hockey tour of Berlin. And we were knocked out of a tournament um, in the semi-final stages. So we had about four days in which there were no constraints on us. And I can remember getting ferociously drunk one night in Berlin and the next morning waking up with a terrible hangover and walking through the streets of Berlin and thinking to myself, there has to be more to life than this. And, and that was really the beginning of a long search that led to me becoming a Christian and feeling a call to ministry. Uh, And so at the ripe old age of about 22, I began to study for the ministry. So if it wasn't for a hangover, we wouldn't have your ministry. (laughs) I think that's very probably right. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Um, You then went on to have a long history in broadcasting, both as a producer and a broadcaster for the BBC. And you must have witnessed so much change in public and attitude to religion in that time? The the biggest change was um, I I started off as a producer on Radio Ulster uh, at the height of the Troubles. 
And it was probably the most exciting period in my broadcasting career because we were dealing with real crisis things. You know, things were happening all the time. And our studio in Belfast was about the only place where people from across the religious divide could come together in a neutral environment Mm. and feel free to discuss things. And it was was really invigorating. Mm. And I then applied for a job in Bristol, not thinking for one second that I would get it. Uh, and when I turned up for work the first day, it was a terrible culture shock because in in Ireland you could talk about religion and know that people understood that it was pretty important. In England, most of them couldn't give a stuff about it, didn't understand it. It was a completely secular environment. And I think if I look back on my 44 years in broadcasting, that, that's the big change, the move away from a situation where religion was part of life, the centre of things, to somewhere where, which was entirely secular, where in the most part you felt hostility towards religion and towards religious broadcasting. And I think that's really the story of my broadcasting career. And yet so many people in the world are religious. Why, mm. why is, has this hostility grown, do you think? I think it's just the environment in Western Europe. You know, when you think about 82% of the world's population have a commitment to a faith tradition. And people in the West are so blinkered that they, they can't see that. They think that what's happening in Western Europe is typical of the rest of the world. Um, and so o- o- over the years, particularly up to 9-11, 9-11 was a big turning point. Because when 9-11 occurred, all of a sudden people thought, this stuff is important. We may not think so, but the rest of the world does. And we'd better learn what's going on. And I think that was the starting point for my program, Beyond Belief, because Beyond Belief went on air, I think, four months after 9-11. And that gave us a context in which we could discuss things that even a secular world would recognise were important. And, And had it not been for that, you know, I wished with all my being that it hadn't happened, but had it not been for 9-11, I sometimes wonder whether our programme would have had the currency that it did. So there's a parallel, it sounds, between Belfast and Beyond Belief, which is that a radio uh, studio became a really unique space for talking about really important issues that there was no public space to talk about elsewhere. Is that fair? I think that's spot on. I think that's right. Um, In my studio in um, Beyond Belief, people from all sorts of religious traditions came together to talk and to discuss. And, And our aim was always to cast more light than heat. And I think the contributors to Beyond Belief came to understand that they could enter into my studio and they would get a fair hearing and they would not be subjected to sort of ultra-critical comments that they might expect in a very secular studio. Ernie, the culture in your native Northern Ireland, Ernie, that too has become increasingly diverse and increasingly secular, as throughout the rest of the UK and in Ireland also. Where do you think things are headed in Northern Ireland? Well, I've been out of it for 40 years. (laughs) So I, I don't know the answer to that. I know that my nieces and nephew 
and their children are living in a completely different environment to that in which I was brought up. I don't detect any trace of sectarianism among them. And that means that they are much more open. Uh, so I, I think I think there will be change. I think if, if we're talking political change, I, I, I worry about the idea that if there was ever a referendum and there was a 51 to 49 percent vote mm-hmm. for um, abandoning the union, I would worry about that because I think within that there is the potential for more sectarian unrest and violence. I think if it's to happen, it has to happen gradually and with consent, and that doesn't mean a 2% majority. It has to be done very gradually. Um, And nobody knows what the economics are going to be like, but it's economics who drive these things. But uh, religiously... Uh, you know, the atmosphere is totally different to what it was when I was growing up. Um, I'll tell you one, one story, Siobhan, that, that has really affected me profoundly. When, when I was a producer of the Radio Ulster, I went one Saturday up to Derry to produce morning service from a church in the Bogside for Easter Sunday. And the celebrant priest was a very good friend of mine. And it was a terrible night in Derry because there were bombs going off and there were gunshots through the city. And we did the rehearsal and then I was staying with the priest in his flat. And then we, we went for supper in the Everglades Hotel on the water side of the city. And he said to me he had to celebrate the Easter vigil with his congregation, would I come? And I came and it was a packed church. And he said I was there. He said who I was, Presbyterian minister, and they all gave me a round of applause. And the moment of communion came, and I would guess there was about a 1,000 people in that church, and 999 of them went up to receive communion. And I sat at the back and um, was never more aware of the divisions in the body of Christ. Easter Saturday evening, bombs going on around the city, and here we were celebrating division. And after he had given communion to every member of his flock, he walked the length of the church. And I still get emotional about it. And he offered me communion. And it it was one of the the, the defining moments of my life. And um, I, I would hope and pray that over the next 20 years, that sort of gesture would become commonplace and accepted um, and I think we've, we have made progress towards that and I just hope that progress can continue and it is so often in these one to one parish by parish synagogue by synagogue community hall by community hall people at a grassroots level just behaving according to the deep tenets of their faith that changes things isn't it Comple- completely, Ab- absolutely. That, that's that's how it's done on a, on a, on a one-to-one basis. That people becoming friends and just accepting. You know, it is it is it is ridiculous in in an largely unbelieving society that we should still be harbouring divisions in the Christian Church. Ernie Ray, former head of religious broadcasting for the BBC, and the presenter of Beyond Belief on Radio Four. For 21 years, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. It's been a great pleasure, Siobhan. Thank you very much. 
And that brings us to the end of this evening's programme. Thank you for listening. The Leap of Faith is presented by Siobhan Garrigan. The researcher is Sinead Kennedy. The broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland. And the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan.